start this podcast how she starts every podcast i really wanted to jump in with singing baby it's cold outside uh-huh. but one i don't know that that song is still appropriate i think there's some mixed feelings some people on it. think it's problematic and two i want people to continue listening to the rest of this podcast and i don't know that my singing is going to draw them in no in the way that not. i wish that it would probably not but it is december it is and it's finally cold in texas Yay! <laughs> Christmas decorations are up. Holidays ready to be celebrated. Sure. I mean, I could go down a whole diatribe about how you like the holiday season, but not the actual Christmas day. So this is like fully where you're at. <laughs> you know, that was told in confidence. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> you Which know, I lean into the, you like, the day is over very quickly. The season is here for a long time. It is. And, uh, just in case anyone cares or is wondering, it's just because there's so much pressure on the day of Christmas and uh, there's like such a buildup and then it's over. It's over. Whereas the season, there's so much magic in the season right. and just yeah. walking around and doing, if you're in Austin, the Trail of Lights or watching Elf, which is one of my favorite movies, sure. or just having the tree up. I mean, honestly... Sitting by the tree and reading a book with the Christmas tree lights on mm-hmm. and some faint music playing in the background, maybe some candles lit. Not baby, it's cold outside. Not baby, it's cold outside <laughs> is like there's something magical to that. And I love immersing myself in that holiday. Just the day of, I'm like, there's just a lot that goes on. It's also this almost day. over. It's sad. It's It's got a lot going on. Yes. And then you got to look at your Christmas decorations and then all you think about is now I got to take these down. Two weeks later. I mean, yes, <laughs> so you can leave them up for a while, but you're still like, now nah, I got to take them down. That's why I put them up in November. I didn't mean to get such a bummer about Christmas. I was trying to get you back to the season. <laughs> no, we are no. in the season. It's only December 7th. The holiday season is happening. You know what else happens today? No, you don't. Frasier <laughs> finale airs. Oh. The new Frasier that's on Paramount+. Plus. Okay, great. Which Excellent. is tied to our conversation today, which is... Our Achievement in Television Excellence awardee, James Burroughs, legend James Burroughs, who did the original Frasier and Cheers and Taxi, this Frasier, Friends, Will and Grace, all the things. Keep listening. Keep piling them on. Comedy genius. He really is. Never will there be another because television's also changed. I know. I mean, it's (laughs) true when you think about people like... James Burroughs, or I'm going to add in a Norman Lear in this uh-huh, conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah, There will not be another. There will be new people that they are doing new, new things that these two beautiful, wonderful gentlemen couldn't have done. But yeah, but the television landscape is now no longer what it was. Death of the sitcom. I don't know if we believe that that is a true statement. I mean, Abbott Elementary is really holding on for that. Is that a sitcom? This is my question. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I know. I I honestly don't know. I believe it is. Okay. Okay, great. I mean, somebody else. It's a situation comedy. That is what sitcom stands for. Excellent. And (laughs) it is a situation comedy. They are in a school, and it's funny, and it's a half an hour, and... There's the single cam and the multi-cam, and the sitcom has become many things. So many of those. And so it is a single cam. It's not in front of a live audience, as far as I know. Yeah. Which is what 
James Burroughs excels at. Correct. The multi-cam live audience situation. Oh, that's brilliant. But yeah, the sitcom in the definition of situation comedy. Yeah. Besides Abbott Elementary. Currently? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I know there are more. There was a whole bunch of them for a while there that I really liked, um, like Single Parents Mm -hmm. and um, Life in Pieces. They're not around right now, but in the recent history that were a little different, but kind of like bridge the gap a little bit between the two. Do you watch Our Flag Means Death? Is that a sitcom? It's a half-hour comedy, yes. That's what we're Well, yeah, well, what's the difference between a sitcom and a half-hour comedy? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're confusing multi-cam and single-cam. Well, no, but I don't feel that people call half-hour comedy sitcom. Like these, if you will, uh, prestigious... I don't know. If she's I, putting I quote, She's putting <laughs> one-handed quote marks. <laughs> like like a Veep. Is a Veep a sitcom? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm not. The reason I don't know is I'm not qualified to answer these questions. Exactly. I don't mean it like that. But like, I don't know that. <laughs> I would not put Our Flag Means Death as a sitcom. But then again, we are all learning. I don't know that I, know. I fully know the definition <laughs> of a sitcom. I definitely sitcom. think at one point you thought at, like single cam and multi-cam might not be both Well, sitcom. definitely my head in this James Burroughs conversation, which sure. you are correct, I was incorrect on, was the multicam. Yes, that is broadcast definitely. multicam. Yes, live audience. Correct. That in my head is like, and maybe it's just classic sitcom. But that in my head, when I think sitcom, like that's where I go. Sure. But then I had thoughts about what about The Office? Single cam situation comedy. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Or Parks and Rec. Single cam multi or situation comedy was modern family filmed in front of a studio audience not the important part of the I don't story think so no okay yeah same like that kind of they stuff they did they took on that like still talking to the camera th- interview situation they did yep i really yeah. loved that show i liked it for a while yeah the first few seasons yeah. i just found great Anything delight that goes in it goes on too long i sometimes piece out of but that's not exactly true but i i, I hit a wall i think that it's true for myself now versus things that aired in like the 90s, early 2000s, yeah, I mean, when I you watched... didn't have all these streaming. So you sure. were, you would stay with things even when they had lulls for five, sure. 10 years because you were getting it week to week as opposed to once all the streaming or watching yeah. it next day on Hulu or all of those things came into be, then it became harder to keep up with the things that had got yeah, off there's also just bit. like a lot more of it like there used to only be yeah i mean way back when pre-our time there used to be three channels like everybody watched i love lucy because you have three choices but then even like when nbc must see tv our heyday i feel like even if there was a lot of cable channels there were really like still like five to ten choices that like everyone was watching and then there were like reruns and like AMC played Shawshank Redemption all the time. And like, yeah, yeah. there was all of that. Then AMC started making Breaking Bad and like it became a a bigger thing. But there was still like, it's why those numbers will never be hit again. Why everyone watched Friends was like mm-hmm. on Thursday nights, must see TV. If you wanted to watch a comedy, like 
that was the that was what you watched. You yeah, like TGIF Friday night. Like that's deal. what you were watching. There weren't other options. They don't even really have new shows on Friday nights anymore. Although that is when Shark Tank comes out. <laughs> not, that is a not a sitcom. <laughs> At least we agree on that. There is a live studio. At, well, no, there's. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm going to take all of that back. I will say, getting back to James Burroughs, we both read his book, mm-hmm. and this conversation is wonderful and. He, we did the Cheers reunion the night before, and like he's got, you know, many, many stories to tell. But for anybody that's super interested, his book is not only a very easy read, like it's just like flow right through the storytelling, it really does tell you the history of these TV shows. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, he starts on, he starts a little before Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah, because he starts with his theater background. But I mean, even I think he does a few other TV shows before. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. I'm pretty sure but, Mary Tyler Moore was his first TV directing. Great. And, but I fact check that. I Anyone know. who See, reads we're, it. We're, neither one we're of us are going to really lean But into you want to know fun anecdote sure. that I told you during the festival, but it's oh, been a long great. time. You may not remember. So I listened to his book. Oh, sure. Which I love, especially autobiographies when the person reads them. But I had been listening to it a little bit before the festival, just on walks and that sort of thing. The day before we moved into the Driscoll, I listened to the Cheers chapter. Oh, nice. And so that's where I like paused and then picked back up after the festival. And I was like, this is an excellent stopping point to go to the festival. And it just, I feel like that was very fresh on the mind. Is that the anecdote? Or were that you is the tell- anecdote. Oh, okay. No, that is the anecdote is that I had just listened to the Cheers chapter before we did the Cheers reunion. That and that felt very special. It was very, the whole thing was very special. The thing I would say that is not in this panel, but like in thinking about the festival was, you know, we spent a couple of days with James because of the Cheers reunion. and then Or this, Jimmy. Yeah, or Jimmy. Um, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, and I mean, you hear him in interviews or anything. He's very dry. He is like not overly emotional. Um, And on the cheers night, I sort of was like, oh, he's here. He's participating. They're having a good time. They're all going out to dinner. But like, I didn't really connect with him. And the next day following the cheers reunion, before this interview, the two of us with him in the green room, he felt like he'd gotten a little emotional maybe Mm -hmm. the night before and like had warmed up a bit. And was very nice, like in a very busy green room, the three of us sitting in a corner, like talking about even like Will and Grace. And the idea that one person directed every episode of that show is absolutely bananas. And like talking to him about that and the change in things and it, I don't have any like deep words of wisdom, but it was just this like very intimate moment where it did feel like guards went down and he was comfortable where he was and was like happy to be there and thought it was very special. Yes, agreed with that. We gave him a nice new award and a watch from our friends at Shinola. <laughs> I don't know that he needed it, but he nope, liked it. Nope, it was beautiful. It. it was fine. Um, well, I mean, we can probably sit here and talk about how great he is, or we could let Jim Halterman from TV Guide Magazine talk to him, and the people can hear all about his career. And then go read the book. And then go read the book. Or listen to it. Or listen to it, which I... Just interchange the two with your Christmas tree and the twinkly lights. <laughs> so it is, you know, it's a nice holiday read. I think it's great, and then go watch all of Will and Grace. It's gonna be great. <laughs> or cheers. We're so good at this. We're great. Happy holidays. <laughs> Enjoy James Burroughs, moderated by Jim Halterman of TV Guide Magazine. 
there are no tissues up here. I want to um, meet this guy. <laughs> First of all, congratulations on your award. Thank the, you. The hardest question I will ask you in this panel, do you have room for it? Is there somewhere for it to go with all your other awards? Uh, there are always room. Okay. <laughs> all right, we're just a couple of silver-bearded Jimmies hanging out on a Saturday ATX. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Tell me about last night, because to celebrate Cheers for One, your hand in Cheers, and everything about last night, how did you feel about that? Well, it was, uh, uh, we don't get to congregate very often, and to be with uh, uh, my two partners, Glenn and Les, who uh, were kind enough to give me a creative credit by the show, although, uh, for the show, although they, they did most of the writing. I, there was an occasional joke I threw in in, in 11 years on that show. But um, it, it was great to see them and also great to see those three other fuck-ups. <laughs> that sums it up. Um, I, I want to go back even further a little bit. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of people that know your, your career and your life know the theater was a big part of your life early on with your father. How much did that impact you being a TV director as far as this, your style and just how you looked at things? Um, well, what I do, the uh, multi-camera situation comedy in front of a live audience is theater. It's not, it's not television. I, I, uh, everything that I do is, uh, is, has to do with staging a play and the reaction of the actors and everything like that. And then the last two days I bring in cameras to cover the play. So it's all about pleasing the audience. And, you know, you, you got to make them laugh. If you don't make them laugh with a joke, you change the joke. Because it's, uh, if you're going to do a funny show, you should be able to write a funny joke. And uh, we, we never sweetened cheers. We, you know, we never had fake laughter in there. Because we, if a joke didn't work, they changed the joke. So what I do is uh, an influence of growing up on the New York, in the New York theater with my dad. And uh, uh, I watched him work. He was a director. He was also a playwright. He wrote uh, Guys and Dolls. He wrote How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Cactus Flower, 40 Carats, uh, a, a number of... So I grew up on the, uh, on the New York stage. And uh, uh, on, on Cactus Flower, I was a stage manager, which is the guy who calls the cues during the show. And, you know, it was responsible for the actors being there a half an hour and the stagehands being there and coordinating the blackouts and the scenery moving. So, but in rehearsal with my dad, I would watch him work and he always treated everybody with kindness. He was, um, he, he wrote and directed, but he wrote a lot on his feet. When he was rehearsing, he would think of lines and he put them in there. And, but he was always kind. He was never, he was never a martinet. He didn't scream at actors. He just manipulated them. <laughs> because, you know, as a director, you have a vision, and the actor has a vision. And if your vision is right, you have to make the actor think that that was his vision. So, um, uh, so uh, my, Abe, was, my dad, was, was very good at that, and I learned that. Your first, your first TV directing credit is Mary Tyler Moore show. You worked with her on a, in a play uh, b way before her series was on. 
her, her, that series, um, you sent her a letter. If you hadn't sent that letter, would things have played out differently? Absolutely. I, I uh, uh, Mary was in, after the, being Laura Petrie in the Dick Van Dyke show, she wanted to try the theater because I think, you know, she was a dancer and grew up in New York City and she wanted to try the theater. So she committed to a, a musical of Breakfast at Tiffany's and uh, it was a show that my dad wrote and directed and the score was by Bob Merrill and it was not my, my father's best work. And uh, so uh, you had, it had Mary Tyler Moore and Richard Chamberlain, Dr. Kildare and Laura Petrie. So it sold tickets. So we went to Philadelphia, which you do with, a, with, in the old days, which shows you take them out of town to try them out, to Philadelphia and I think Boston. And, you know, the audience, you know, uh, full houses. Eh, okay show. But David Merrick, who was then uh, like uh, the king of the Broadway producers, uh, didn't like the play. So he asked my father, uh, to not be on it anymore. It's a classy way of saying he fired him. And uh, he hired, in 1966, a man known for his musical comedy skills, Edward Albee. <laughs> so the first thing Edward did was to bring Holly's miscarriage back into the show. So it was doomed. <laughs> the show was doomed. We, we, uh, we rehearsed in New York, Edward's version of the show. It was, we previewed, and it was a hot ticket because on the, in the first preview, uh, the audience was hooting at us. They were yelling, screaming, write better stuff, this is horrible. And I was in charge of Mary, Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Chamberlain. I would greet them when they came off the stage and make sure they get to their dressing room, make sure they make their cues. Mary would come off at the end of every show and collapse in my arms and cry. Just, she was devastated. And so uh, Merrick, David Merrick saw this and saw how bad the show was and he canceled it on Wednesday. And uh, we went to Sardi's for a wake and I, I stayed with Mary until her husband, Grant Tinker, came. So I, I had I had this bond with this woman. We were on this lifeboat together. So I went on to direct in Summerstock, uh, I did, and Dinner Theater, I did. Uh, uh, well, you won't, they won't know the names. I, I did Joan Fontaine in 40 Carats. I used to, I used to be able to wrangle Zsa Zsa Gabor. <laughs> I, she, did, she did two shows. She did 40 Carats, or she did Bly Spirit. It didn't matter. She was the same in both shows. <laughs> so one night I was in doing some show in Wallingford, Connecticut, and I turned on the television on a Saturday night, and there was a Mary Tyler Moore show. And I said, wow, they're doing uh, a 20-minute, 25-minute show in a week. I'm doing a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour show in a week. I think I can do that. And I did write a letter to her. And uh, Grant Tinker called me about two weeks later and said, well, we want to bring you out to Hollywood to do a show for MTM and, uh, because we want stage directors. Because you can't learn how to talk to actors or how to stage something. You can learn the technical stuff of moving cameras. 
So that's, that's how it all began. That's a great first credit is the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, what, once, once you started working in the medium and you were doing other shows that were huge in the 70s, like Laverne and Shirley and a lot of these things, what, did it ever dawn like, oh, wow, I can do this. Like, this is going to be my career. I'm going to be able to do this for a while. Did you ever have a moment like that? Well, um, I knew on the first show I did, on the Mary Tyler Moore show, it was a... Uh, it was a bad script. And we read the script around the table on a Monday, and I said to Grant Tinker, in a sea of Danish, I get a bagel. <laughs> and I endured the week. I, I invoked anything I could. I invoked Chekhov. I invoked uh, uh, Shakespeare. I tried to put in some business and stuff like that. It was a show where Lou, Lou moves into Rhoda's apartment. So Mary and Lou are working together and living together. That was the thrust of it. And I, I worked as hard as I could. And as I was walking to the stage to shoot the show, Mary Tyler Moore was coming the other day, the other way. And she said to me, we feel our investment in you has worked out. So right then and there, I knew that um, I, could, I could work in the company. And I got some new hearts after that. I got the Paul Sand shows after that. I got Bob Crane shows, I, did, I got Rotas. So I, I, I was now able to direct in, at that point, which was the world-class comedy television workshop. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, you said on the Smartless podcast um, that you don't really hang out at Video Village during tapings. You like to be near the actors, not just watching the monitors, but actually being close to them. Can you talk about why that's an advantage? Well, for that? It, it's it's the theater in the theater you know you you're in the back of the house watching the action you're not watching on a, a monitor or anything like that you want to hear the rhythms i want to be in a position if on the way to a joke an actor screws up the line so i will go bop, 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 like that and start over so the audience doesn't hear the screwed up joke because 90 percent of humor is surprise and if you know what's coming you're not going to laugh as hard so I try to do that, protect a joke. Plus, I like to be uh, close to my actors. I just, you know, the smell of them makes me happy. <laughs> and I've been to several tapings. I went to a lot of the Rolling Graces um, during the revival, and I saw a, a very well-run set. It just everybody was doing their job, and and I kept hearing that bup, 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 bup. And I and I heard. I just went to a, the Fraser revival. I just went to a taping a month or so ago, and they were doing that too. Can you explain? Was, was it me or something? It wasn't you. It was somebody else. Wait for that a minute. The, act, the, act, the actors were doing it. The actors were oh, doing it. Well, Kels, Kels directed a lot of them. So uh, yeah. he's, Kelsey's a wonderful director. Um, I just, that's, I'm there to protect them. Okay. It's my job. I don't care about the shots. I've seen the shots in, uh, in uh, the camera shot. I've seen them before in rehearsal and everything like that. And I can look at a camera and know where it's pointing and, whether it's a wide shot or a tight shot. So I'm there to support the actors. Okay. And, and clearly, since you're so, and clo so close to the actors, and you have done some on-camera work, we saw a little clip from the comeback, but was that ever an ambition of yours? Is that just more of a fun thing to put in some of these shows when you actually are on camera, either as yourself or a character? No, it was not an ambition of mine. I worked in Summerstock at the, uh, at the Barter Theater in Abingdon, Virginia, as an, uh, as an apprentice. And I was in a couple of shows, you know, I was, uh, I was uh, 
in a show called Make a Million, and I played Buddy, the game show guy. And uh, I had a scene with this actress, and I, st I, I said, you know, before I went out, because to, to do the scene, I said, maybe I'll try to lose myself a little bit and, you know, get into what, uh, what actors are trained to do. And I got out there and I, and I, I did the scene and I, I was so, out, you know, I, I was so discombobulated because I was trying to let myself into the role as actors do and I had no toe in reality and it was just scared the crap out of me. And so I never, I never wanted to do that. And then when I was hanging around MTM learning, you know, I would, I, they put me in a, they put me in a, a, a Rota show. I played Mike Broder, a literary agent, <laughs> named after Mr. Broder back there, who is our agent. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not Mr. Broder, it's just Broder. That's how powerful he is. In fact, he's referred to as Darth Broder. <laughs> and uh, so I, I did that, I played a maintenance man on the New Heart Show. The first Phyllis I ever directed, I was the telephone man opposite Chloris, which scared the shit out of me. Because <laughs> she was so, Good. Yeah. And with, with a lot of your shows, especially Will and Grace, you directed most of the Cheers episodes. What, what does that do for you and the show to have that consistency? Because a lot of shows, you know, you might do the pilot and then you go do other things. And, but these shows, you were heavily involved with that. It helps on a show to have a resident director. And uh, uh, since I was one of the creators of Cheers, uh, I, I did as many shows as I could. Uh, I was, uh, my first job as resident director was on Taxi, which was the most difficult show I've ever done. It was just, uh, from the writers to the interplanetary cast that we had, uh, it was the huge set. It was plus the first time four film cameras were used. Uh, it was, it was, it was difficult for me. Um, I, I don't know. How, I don't know what your pilot tally is. I know it was at least fifty, probably more at this point. Um, some are friends. Some are not friends. How do you know? How do you know to say yes to something for yourself that you read a script and like this? This I need to do this, or I want to do this. I yeah. It it starts with the words. It it starts with the words on the page. The concept is not that important to me. What's important to me is the execution of the concept. Uh, uh, you know, a bar in Boston. That's, you know, but it was executed with, they, they brought a, 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 a Pepper and Tracy relationship into it. And so you had two different things and the boys executed really, really well. Uh, Will and Grace was, you know, somewhat high concept in the fact that two of the characters were gay, but the execution of that was what's important. And the and Friends, it was six people sitting around a coffee house, but the writing was so good. It was the last pilot I did in 94, and uh, I think I worked on a weekend because I had already done four pilots, but I really wanted to do this one. And uh, uh, can you believe those six people were available in 1994 at the end of pilot season? You've also had to hand in a few revivals, Will and Grace. You've directed a couple of the Frasers that will be on later this year. Are, are revivals always a good idea, in your opinion? Because some shows come back and they, they're great, and others, they don't really gel as well as they used to. Uh, 
I, I think the key thing is that um, the characters don't change don't change as much as from the original. If they do, it's a whole different look to the show and stuff like that. And the Will and Grace, we had done a uh, political video that uh, in 2015, and we got the band back together, and they started reading this, and uh, and it was like, oh my God, nothing had changed. So Bob Greenblatt, who was there, the president of NBC, says, you want to do you want to do the show again? And we said, why not? So we did another three years. They were older. They Will wore glasses. Grace wore glasses. There was, Jack had, Jack had slept with everybody in New York. So uh, there, was, there was nothing new. Right. And let me ask you, just because I've, I've been to the Fraser tapings. Um, in that one, I don't think it's a spoiler that it is, it's actually out there that he moves back to Boston. So in that sense, we're not in the same sets we used to be. It's not the full cast coming back. It's really him and kind of a new world in a way. What are the challenges in that um, to still establish this character but in a new space than what we're used to seeing him in? Well, the character's established. It's Kelsey. You know, Kelsey is, he was a buffoon on Cheers and he became a straight man on Frasier. So you know has his ability, his incredible, extraordinary ability to, to be an actor and to make pompous funny and not hate him. And, and, and so uh, it's just, you know, we're introducing a new cast. He goes back to his son is in Boston. So he goes back and the series is gonna be about he and his son. And uh, his son is taking on the uh, attributes of, of Martin Crane, Frazier's dad, the kid's a blue collar kid. So that's, you know, and he, he has new friends that are, that are funny and uh, I think it'll be. I think it'll be good. Yeah, yeah. From what I've seen, it's good. I liked it. Um, if somebody said, "Let's reboot Cheers" or "Let's revive Cheers," what would you say? No. Okay. No, you're not going to touch that baby. Okay. Yeah, you have a say in that. Yeah. No. <laughs> and the Charles brothers and I. I mean, we talked about. You know, we talked about going on after Ted left, and uh, we said, "No, this is it. Wrap it up." You know, put it out there on a on satellite TV and on streaming, and let people enjoy it. Yeah. Okay. Looking at all your credits and all the clips we just saw, it seems like you've done a little of everything in comedy. Anything you, that's still on your bucket list? Any shows you would like to work on that you haven't, or some some idea or something you want to do? Uh, I really wish somebody would write a great script, a great sitcom script again. It's. It's a dying form for, you know, I don't know what's going on. As I like to say, I attended the funeral about four times in my lifetime, and always it popped out of the coffin. This time I'm not, you know, they're, they're digging in the ground right now. And uh, I don't know why it's economical, and I'm not sure why people don't write the multi-camera sitcom anymore. Yeah, is, is it? A, I don't think it's a streaming thing, is it? Because it's how we're know. watching things. Chuck Lorre, who's my friend, a dear friend, he kept it alive for a long time, and he loves it. But right now, uh, I'm not sure. There, I don't think there are any. Uh, uh, well, well, the Fraser will be a, a multi-camera on a on a on a streaming service, which is m totally rare. I don't think there are any others. No. 
I mean, night, the Night Court revival is probably the only other one I can... Yeah, that's on AB. That's, that's on NBC. A NBC, right. Yeah, and I have to say, there's still something... What was that? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, okay. well, maybe. But I, but I know there's, just having done it about a month ago, there's still something so special about sitting in an audience and watching these sitcoms be done. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see. So hopefully we're just at a little lull and it'll pop back up. Um, the, the live before studio audience specials for TV fans, they're just gold. And that, again, that's, you're shooting things like a play, but it is live, so you have to be on the clock. And was that, doing those specials, was that any, any challenge with uh, that? Scared the pants off me. <laughs> so you have to be, I would do a half hour show in a week. On this, I was doing an hour show in a night. So I, I'm not with the actors. I'm in a truck with the technical people and there are four screens in front of me and we've rehearsed the shots I cut. I can't snap anymore, so I use a clicker that's shaped like a frog and it clicks. <laughs> and so you have to, I'm the editor. On the shows, on all these shows, I shoot the show and then we have an editor. But I'm the editor, so you have to, you know, we're doing All in the Family, we're doing The Jeffersons, and you don't know, you kind of know where the laughs are, but you don't know how long they're going to be in front of that studio audience, the live studio audience. So I have to be on the ball in the truck, you know, saying to, the, to my, my TD, don't cut until I click, because I think this is going to get a big laugh, and you may have to go to the other person in the scene to get a reaction. So it's all, it's crazy there. It's, it's crazy in that truck. And it, you know, it's, I've, I've done two of them and, and uh, I, 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 I had a great time. I, I, you know, I got to work with uh, uh, Woody, it was uh, Archie Bunker and Marissa Tomei was Edith and Jamie Foxx was uh, George Jefferson and Wanda Sykes was Wheezy and then I did, uh, Jimmy Kimmel said, let's do uh, kid shows or young adult shows with older actors. So I did, I did uh, Facts of Life and, and Different Strokes. Facts of Life with uh, Jen, Jen Aniston and Gabrielle Union and, uh, and Catherine Hahn. And it was, um, I had, I had, I knew I had, but they were playing, they were playing young girls. Those, those girls were in their teens, right, teens, in yeah. the show. Yeah. So I didn't know how that would work. But I told them to play it in earnest, which they did. And I knew I had, I had Lenny and Squiggy in that show. I had Bateman and Will Arnett. <laughs> there isn't a net big enough to hold those two down. <laughs> but you know, they they helped they helped with the humor. I had John Stewart playing uh, the awkward guy in the end, and uh, and then on different strokes, I had Lithgow, who I've worked with before, playing. Conrad Bain's part and Kevin Hart Amazing. playing um, Arnold and Damon Wayans and Snoop Dogg. Amazing. Uh, he was, he was, he's the nicest man in the world. With those specials and even any, any show, when it's somebody who, who has not done sitcom, but you're bringing them in for whatever reason because they're a big name or they're doing something, how do you talk to them as the director to kind of just ease them into that world if they're not used to it? 
Well, you try to cast people who are used to it because, uh, you know, when you're in front of a live audience, it's not going to be like a rehearsal. They're going to react. And you have to be acting all the time because uh, you never know when I'm going to cut to your face. So you have to, you have to be aware of that. And you have to play it a little bigger than if it was single camera, but a little less than if you're on the stage trying to reach the back of the house. So, but I think most of the people, you know, Jamie Foxx, I did, he was on, uh, uh, oh God, I can't remember the name of the show, uh, with uh, Charlie, Charles Dutton, uh, Rocky, oh, Rocky, Rock, Rock and Reggie it was, or Rock. Rock, Rock. Rock yeah. And he, he, was, he was an ancillary character and, he, and we cut him out. He, we, we didn't have enough time for him. So I knew him from back then. So, but you know, Jamie was a stand-up comic, so he knows how to do that. And we had Will Farrell, who I think knows how to play in front of an audience. So you, <laughs> so we had, you know, I had Carrie Washington, who was a little nervous, but but she was great. And uh, that's, uh, you know, you just give them confidence and tell them, you know, play it between single camera and a theatrical performance. Okay. We're going to get to some audience questions here in a second. I ask this of actors a lot. I'll ask you, do you go back and watch your shows? Can you watch them without being critical and just enjoy them, or do you prefer not to do that? I watch them. Uh, I have four daughters, uh, and uh, I, I, they're grown now. We have four grandchildren, and I watch some of them, you know, when I come, when I come over, and they'll, they'll, they'll want to watch Cheers, and I'll watch that. Uh, you know, I... I I don't think uh, I don't think I could have done it much better. It it, it worked out. Uh, there's a couple of if you watch Taxi, a couple of my camera moves were just horrible. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in the multi-camera sitcom, you try to make sure the camera is is steady when the character is steady. So there's in the in the first Cheers, or uh, no, and in its last Cheers when they kiss. There's a shot of Ted when he's angry where the camera goes into a close-up like that. And because there was no video assist, I, 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 the operator didn't tell me he wasn't there until halfway through the line. So I see some of that on Taxi, but the, the performance is there, even though the camera is a little shaky. So I, I, I wouldn't want to change anything. And what, and what do you watch just for yourself when you sit down just to chill out? What do you what do you gravitate towards? I watch uh, I watch Ted Lasso, which I'm yeah. Uh, Jason Sudeikis is George Wentz's nephew. That's right. That's right. Yeah, uh, and he George said he was around the stage. He was like he was nine years old. He was around the cheer stage. I watch uh, I watch The Great, which is finished too. Yeah. Uh, uh, I watch Succession, uh, and I watch, uh, I think Curb Your Enthusiasm is incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, that's, you know, and we'll, we'll try to find something else. Uh. Yeah, okay. Do you guys have some questions for Mr. Burroughs? We have a mic here. Um, we'll go right in front here. What's your name? Meg. Hi, Meg. Are there any actors you haven't had a chance to work with that are kind of on your list that you'd like to find a product to work with them? Um, I'd probably, uh, oh, wow. Um, I'd like to work with anybody who, uh, 
has never done any, if I could get a work with a movie star has never done a sitcom. I would, I would, I would really enjoy, you know, just trying to bend him into, into that. I mean, I did, you know, I was surprised. We had Matt Damon on uh, Will and Grace, and he was, it was like crazy. The one thing I do tell them, the one thing I do when I, you know, we had Glenn, I work with Glenn Close and Cher uh, uh, and uh, Patti LuPone, and, uh, uh, you know, I tell them, um, especially on Will and Grace, in rehearsal, the cast is playing at 50%. If and at showtime it's a hundred percent. If you don't get to a hundred percent, you're going to be run over. So that's that's what. But I, as far as I know, I maybe Clint Eastwood. <laughs> you know, I would I would like that. I would I would really, because he would be funny, being Clint Eastwood. <clears throat> let's get let's put that out in the universe. I would okay. watch a Clint Eastwood sitcom. <laughs> In a heartbeat, directed by Jimmy Burrow. It would be Jimmy that Burles. 90s show, because he's 90. That's, that's right, that's right. <laughs> I may find a new title, but that, yeah, that's amazing. Um, more questions? Anybody raise a hand if you've got questions? I see one back here. Wait for the mic. Hi. What's your name? I'm Kimberly Ehrlich. Um, I'm a huge fan of yours. I, I'm actually an associate casting director, and um, but I... From being a film and television major at NYU, I wanted to be you, and I studied you and all that. But then I realized casting is what I love. But um, I, I w I'm wondering, like, do you see yourself retiring? I hope you don't, but uh, is, do you just be like, you'll do it as long as you can do it? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, uh, the, the, the thrill I got from doing, doing the two Frasier shows was just, you know, it made me want it even more. It's just that uh, there's nothing out there. The scripts are not my cup of tea. And uh, so I, you know, I don't work as much as I used to, but I still loving, love doing it. Keeps me young. I was at the first Fraser taping. It was so great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you. Speaking of casting, how, how important is casting when you have a solid script that's great but maybe the cast, the cast hasn't gelled or hasn't come together. How important is that to get that right off the bat? Uh, you, it's, as I said, you, you need a lot of luck. You need luck. Yeah, uh, if you have a great script, you need the right actors to be available at the right time. Uh, and, I, I, you know, there was luck involved in the Friends casting uh, that they were available at the end of 94. I mean, Cheers was... Uh, you know, Teddy was... I had seen Teddy. I, I auditioned Teddy for uh, a show called Best of the West, which uh, Joel Higgins played the part eventually. And uh, uh, so I knew him, and, and he was on... He was playing a hairdresser on Taxi so uh, in one episode. So he was, a, he was... We were lucky that he was available and not engaged. And Shelley Long had been turning down scripts forever, and she just sparked to a great script so uh it's 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 so important you gotta he <clears throat> starts with the script you get the right cast then you have to be on the right network in the right time slot and uh sometimes that doesn't happen sometimes you have a great script and uh, i've done i've done i think two shows that got on the air 
that there were two pilots done for. I did the Big Bang, the pilot of Big Bang Theory, and <clears throat> the first incarnation was uh, was the Jimmy and Jimmy and Johnny were the were the guys. The first incarnation was there. The two nerds were walking down the street, and they come across a girl sitting on a stoop, and they invite her in. It turns out she's a hooker or a prostitute. And so the show was going to be these two guys and the other world. And we shot, I mean, we shot it, and we just, they just never, and the girl was not right. But Chuck was smart, and CBS was smart enough to realize the chemistry of the two boys. And so they, um, we, we did the second pilot, and instead of the prostitute, he added two nerds, which I think is uh, 50, right? <laughs> yeah, right? One prostitute is worth two nerds, right? <laughs> and uh, the, the other one was uh, Third Rock from the Sun. Third Rock from the Sun uh, were the same aliens, the same people, but in the last scene, Lithgow, the character, Dick, stays on Earth because he falls in love with a human. And uh, Tom and Marcy, who, uh, Tommy Werner and uh, Marcy Carsey, uh, we looked at the pilot and said, it, it doesn't work. At the end, when, when John got moony-eyed, it wasn't as good as when he was, you know, his, his outer space self. So they hired Jane Curtin, and Jane played a foil for him. And the show was picked up by, uh, by, it was originally for ABC and they passed on it and NBC picked it up and it ran like four, four and a half years. And you don't always get that second chance. If the first pilot no. doesn't work, they're like, okay, moving on. Moving on. Well, the first pilot, if, it, if a pilot doesn't work, there's something wrong, you know. Uh, so if you have the courage to fix it, uh, you know, which involves money, uh, then, uh, then maybe you'll get a better show. Okay. All right. More questions? Uh, I'm going to take one in the back. Um, I'm right there. Wait for the mic. She's going to bring it to you. You don't play Jeopardy music? Or I know. <laughs> Dead there air. We go. There we go. There we go. Well, speaking of interplanetary, I wondered if you could talk briefly about working with Andy Kaufman. Uh, <laughs> Briefly? Can you do that briefly? Well, how many of you seen Man in the Moon? Okay. So I was a director on that show. I'm not of the movie, but I was a director on that show uh, when Tony Clifton made an appearance. Andy Kaufman was somebody that Jim Brooks and Ed Weinberger and Stan Daniels and Dave Davis wanted in Taxi. And uh, they had, you know, watched him his character, Foreign Man, and they want Foreign Man to be the mechanic. And so one of the ways that Andy, or the way Andy's part of the bargain was that Tony Clifton had to be in one episode. Tony Clifton was Andy Kaufman's alter ego. And it was a bad Las Vegas lounge singer. He had prosthetics on his face, a big belly, a brocade tuxedo, a fluffy shirt, sunglasses, a bad wig, and he would open for an Andy Kaufman concert, and the people in the audience would scream and yell, get him off, we want Andy. So there would be an intermission, and Andy would change and come on. So this was 
this was Andy. Andy was not a com comedian. Andy was a performance artist. So we, you know, we did six shows with Andy, and uh, he was great as Latka. I mean, it was, well, he was wonderful. And the seventh show, which was going to be Tony Clifton. So you had Andy playing Tony Clifton playing Louis De Palma's brother. <laughs> Mr. Olivier couldn't do that. <laughs> and we started to rehearse, and we knew it was ill-fated. And uh, I called Ed Weinberger down. He looked at it and said, okay. So we abandoned rehearsal. We called Andy's agent uh, and said, we're going to have to fire Tony. He said, Andy's not going to be happy. <clears throat> so they, the agent called us back, said, we'll do it. But he has to be in, uh, fired in front of the entire cast with a prostitute on each knee. I guess I said prostitute once, so it didn't get as big a laugh. <laughs> so the day comes, the next day comes, Ed comes down, you're fired. Tony, Andy, as Tony says, I'm not leaving. You're fired, I'm not leaving. You're fired, I'm not leaving. And I'm standing there with Tony Danza and Judd Hirsch and Jeff Conaway, and it's, it's a great time. It's, it's, we knew by Friday that we would replace him and have a great show. And Jeff Conaway got so angry that he charged the stage. And Tony and I had to grab him, pull him back under the stands and said, you're not ruining this for anybody. This is guerrilla theater, let's do it. <laughs> and so you're fired, I'm, I'm not leaving, you're fired. Finally, Judd said, okay, I'll play. So Judd walks on stage, picks up, and a lot got uh, Tony, God, there's so many. And, <laughs> and he throws him off the stage, and there's cameras out there because Andy Kaufman had called him and said, this is what's going to happen. Screaming and yelling, you guys will never worry, television, everything like that, off. We do the show Friday, fine. Monday, Andy comes in as if nothing happened. <laughs> so, but Andy was a genius. He, was, uh, he grew up in Great Neck, Long Island, in a, in, a, in a Jewish family. He was smart. He was manipulating the world. He knew what he was doing at all times. He was, he was, he was, a, he was a genius, Andy. And, uh, you know, gets a bad rap sometimes for Taxi, you know, saying it was self-indulgent that moment. But no, it was... The show was great on... Uh, on Friday night with some other actor playing uh, Louis de Palma's brother, and it was a great experience for, for us all. Okay. okay, good question. Who else has a question? Uh, we'll go right here in front. Hey, so uh, just finished your book and learned so much. It was so great. Uh, I know a lot of your actors uh, shadowed you in, in learning your craft as to be directors. Who are you the most proud of that has made the most progress as a director in their own right? And my sister designed this shirt, so I had to show you. That's amazing. What I, I, I didn't read it. Turn around again. Wheel of Burrows. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's amazing. Are they selling in the lobby? <laughs> mm. Uh, who, who, who became a director uh, uh, who watched me? Well, Schwimmer, David watched me. He's, 
he's, he's a, I don't think he's done that much in sitcoms. He, he's a founder of the Looking Glass Theater, where he is a director. And then uh, Tommy Kale watched me. Do you know who Tommy Kale is? Yeah. He directed Hamilton. He came, so I should take a little bit of credit, right? That's right. <laughs> some residuals. Yeah, there should, you know, wow. Alexander Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Tommy watched me, Fred Savage watched me, um, uh, Bateman, you know, who I, I, I worked with Bateman when he was 15 years old. He was on a show called Valerie that became a series with Valerie Harper. So I've worked with him a number of times. He's one of the great straight men ever as, as arrested, as attested by Arrested Development. Uh, but Jason watched me and he, you, uh, my comedic skills, he put them right into Ozark. <laughs> well, it's got a K in it. You know, if you're a writer, you know, words with a K in it are funny. So, but yeah, I'm so proud of him. He's just, he's just, he's the nicest human being. He and Will and, and, and Sean on that, uh, I, I consider my, them my sons. They're, they are so sweet and have incredible rapport with one another. So as far as other people who watch me, I don't, um, uh, those are the only ones I remember. That's pretty good. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have one more question over here by the door. Hello. Congratulations. Thank you for being here and doing this for us. Thank you. Um, my name is Relina. I am a student for theater and sitcoms are like my favorite thing in the world. So this is what I want to do. This is the world I want to be in. And I was wondering if you had any advice for someone who wants to follow down this path. Uh, get your foot in the door somehow. Whatever it is. If you want to be in theater, uh, say, I'll get coffee. Anything. Because if you're around a production, there will, uh, there will be an opportunity at some point where you maybe then run lines with an actor or something like that. So... Any way you can get your foot in the door to, uh, do you want to direct what, or? So I, like I said, I go to school, it is for musical theater, so I go as an actor, but this past year I started doing stage management and production management, so, and I took directing classes and writing classes, so I'm really open to anything. Well, then get your foot in the door, but make sure, as a gopher or anything like that, and then... If you aspire to something after that, like you want to be a director or you want to act, uh, when, that, when that second door opens to you, make sure you're ready. Because to get the second door open and you're not ready for it, you're never going to get through a door again. So make sure that when you aspire to be when you when you aspire to do something, make sure when that door opens to you, you're ready to do it. That's okay. Um, we're out of time, um, Mr. Burroughs. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Everybody, thank you. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarlane, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, 
between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit ATXFestival.com.